Welcome to Work From The Inside Out, a podcast that highlights real-life stories, practical strategies, and best practices for transitioning your career from unhappiness and dissatisfaction to fulfillment, meaning, and joy. Now here is your host, career and executive coach, Tammy Guler loeb Hey, everybody. I am so excited to introduce my guest today, Keith McCormick. Keith is an independent consultant, thought leader, and LinkedIn learning contributor. He also serves as Cloud Factory's chief data science advisor. Keith started out in the 90s as an analytics software trainer. For the last several years, Keith's emphasis has been working with analytics management to more efficiently run their teams and to nurture new hires as they expand their teams. Please join me in welcoming Keith McCormick. Hey, Keith. Thanks. I've been very much looking forward to this. I've enjoyed the other uh, interviews that I've uh, that I've heard. I had a lot of fun listening to those. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. So, uh, Keith, as you know, work from the inside out is all about all the twists, the turns, the journeys that people have been on in their careers. And I know that you've had a really interesting journey. And so take us back to some of the earlier years and how those may have informed where you are now. I grew up in Rhode Island and um, a couple of things that are kind of interesting about that, I think. Um, I always knew that I would, I mean, even from a young age, I always sensed that I would be college bound because I was a curious kid and, Hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, teachers, well, some teachers at least would encourage me, but I wasn't really a great student. I was, I'd be interested in whatever the teacher wasn't talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it's, uh, I guess some young kids get distracted you know, by, um, you know, sports or social activities and things like that. And that prevents them from, um, you know, attending to their studies. I was always interested in other books. So it's not that I wasn't interested in learning. I just usually want to know part of whatever was going on in the, in the classroom. So uh, that and a bunch of factors uh, led to my folks trying to get me into a, um, a Catholic school when I was high school age, because um, in my town, uh, the graduation rate even wasn't that great. Mm. Uh, and the percentage going to college was really quite, uh, quite small. You know, in fact, I, years later, I met the superintendent of that school district. I had to interview him for, you know, interview some, somebody, an education leader. I don't know what the assignment was, but I had this little interview with him. And he used to joke that most of the students would graduate and go to Bradford U it wasn't a university. It was the soap works. Uh, they, they'd go to the soap factory, you know, uh-huh. that's the, you know, the, one of the big employers, um, you know, in town. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was a bit of a turning point for me, uh, switching at middle school to the school that was about a half hour away and it, all kinds of complicated things about having to borrow the family car to drive to school and, and stuff like that. But that was, that was a transition. It was almost like the beginning of a college experience for me. Yeah, I bet. Um, uh, because it was, um, you know, it was basically like a like a prep school. It wasn't, uh, you know, certainly like an elite school, but but pretty much everybody that was there was going to go to, you know, college. So, um, you know, not um, 
couple of wealthy students, I guess, but most of us were just middle-class kids, but it was just basically a, you know, a way that we could go to, you know, a high school, we'd have a better chance of, uh, you know, getting into school. So, yeah. So you had this, this pivot point and driving yourself to school and kind of having this um, sort of heightened expectation, academic expectation and sort of heightened level of independence. And it sounds like uh, maybe you became a little bit of a different kind of student at that point. No, that's certainly fair to say. So there's a there's a couple of themes that you know lasted into adulthood. I think it's fair to say that started then, hmm. um, because there was all this pressure to do what you had to do to get into school. And again, this was not an elite institution, but it was a school where you know 95 percent of us or whatever planned on going to college. So um, we would do things like SAT prep. Um, even as a sophomore. And yeah. that ended up being um, an important theme for me because I found yeah. out that I was much better at that than I was at school. So I drove my I drove my math teachers crazy because <laughs> um, I wasn't very good about getting my homework done on time, but I would do very well on standardized tests. Interesting, huh? And that ended up becoming a research topic Throughout my twenties, which I'm, I'm sure we'll, you know, we'll talk about at some point about, yeah. you know, what's going on with that phenomenon. So, so in other words, I was the classic underachiever. They call it, you know, where my yeah. test scores were better than my grades. Yeah, and I always hated that phrase. I think the other phrase is just as insulting. The overachiever. I mean, what right. a, to call a teenage kid an overachiever? What does that mean exactly? It seems like right. you're judging them for doing well in school. You know. Yeah. Uh, but that whole overachiever, underachiever thing became a topic of fascination with me since I was a classic example of one of those two types. And teachers were constantly telling me how, you know, I was lazy and I wasn't buckling down. But there was something more interesting going on psychologically, you know, with all of that. But I became fascinated with this over underachiever thing. So, well, it's interesting that you say you became fascinated with it because for some kids, I could see where it would have done a real number on them psychologically to the point where they might not have, they might have lowered their expectations of themselves and, um, you know, maybe just not tried any harder or, you know, I mean, I mean, I know enough about you and what you've achieved over the years to know that you've excelled in many areas. So, you know, I'm just curious what your reflection is now about how you thought about getting that kind of feedback from teachers, how you processed that, and and how you went forward from there. Well, I was... (laughs) The word rebellious is probably the wrong word, but I can't think of a better one. I, I was very kind of rebellious about it, but not in an acting out way. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't uh, shoplifting or something like that. <laughs> I would. The more teachers got on my back about this, your test scores are really strong, your grades are mediocre, therefore you're lazy, right? I mean, the the my way of acting out was to start to read kind of laughing just even saying this, I'd read like these classic mid-century education books. Uh-huh. I'd read, um, you know, even like going back to the 50s and 60s, but I read all this education theory stuff. And I read um, Howard Gardner's <laughs> book on multiple intelligence, because it's a really famous book. Yeah. But you may not recall that that's when it came out. 
it came oh, out 84, 85, something like that. I was like a okay. sophomore and stuff. So this stuff was, this stuff was in the news at the time. You would go to the bookstore and it would be sitting prominently at the beginning of the bookstore. So, so that was my version of acting out was to read a stack <laughs> of education theory books to help explain why I was acting this way. Cause I, cause I wasn't, I wasn't impressed with any of the explanations that my teachers came up with. And some of them were just not just disappointed. They were angry. So my junior religion teacher, I still remember quite well, saw me with one of these education theory books and he didn't, he didn't judge me like everybody else. He didn't say, Keith, put that away and do your homework. <laughs> he said, you know, that stuff's interesting. It's in the news, but it's really ultimately very superficial. You need to read Summerhill. Do you know the book oh, that I'm Summerhill, talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So, I read that in college. Yeah. So here I was like 15 years old and he said, you know, this seven intelligent stuff. The other one that was a famous book at the time that probably no one would have heard of now is was called Horace's Compromise. It was written by a guy named Ted Sizer, who was the head of the education department. Oh, yeah. Brown, yes. who I met when I was a freshman, because I told my college advisor that I admired his book and I wanted to read him. So we ju just jumped in the car and we drove to Providence and we taught to Ted Sizer. So, you know, so I was doing all these, I thought, cool things, but a lot of my teachers judged me for it. This teacher did not. He said, these are all great, but add this to the stack. Wow. I still have a copy of Summerhill downstairs, I'm sure. Wow. So... This oh, this is fascinating. So, I, I love I love the way you're painting this picture of yourself in high school and um, the relationships you had with your teachers and the way you navigated the feedback you were getting from them. At the time, it was certainly stressful. So, briefly, where it took me was I had to decide what to do with all of this. So, yeah. my favorite subject was probably history because yeah. you know. We've been talking for a few minutes. People might forget that when you introduce me that I'm a data scientist now. Right, right. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm not an educator. I don't do any of these things that we're uh, talking about professionally. So what was I going to do? You know, well, I had to figure out where to apply to schools. And my folks were kind of bemused during this whole period. I mean, I think they just didn't know what to do with me, but they felt like they were doing what they had to do, which was they... They, you know, got me out of my local high school and yeah. to this other school, you know, and, uh, you know, it was middle-class family. So it was a, it was an expense that they had to take. Yeah. On. Yeah. I, yeah. I think they felt like they were doing their, doing their thing, but there were two things about my college plans where they really kind of drew a line in the sand and they weren't too excited about. One was maybe I would go to one of these very summer hill type colleges. Uh-huh you know, like a uh, Bard or something like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. all these brochures. And I was fired up about that. And it was like, they would just roll their eyes. It really out of horror. It wasn't, yeah. I don't think discouragement was really the emotion that they were experienced. They were yeah. just terrified that that's what I would do. Yeah. So they talked me out of that. And then um, the other thing that they talked me out of was uh, doing any kind of liberal arts major. <laughs> that was verboten because the feeling was I wouldn't be able to get a job. Uh. You know? And, you know, you're, you're influenced at, at that age. How can, you know, kids say that they're not influenced by their folks at that age, but everybody is. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So on both of those counts, they won. So I went to an engineering school. Ah. Uh, um, and it's not like computer science was uninteresting to me. Yeah. But um, that's what I ended up studying. But history, you know, history was out. 
you know? So um, I did feel like um, college was almost like paying penance for <laughs> these mistakes I made in high school. Like I had to, I had to make up for it some way. Like, yeah, I kind of, you know, I, I was kind of screwed up student in high school. I mean, you know, obviously I did well enough to get into a, a good school. So I wasn't, uh, you know, a complete disastrous high school student, but this whole idea that I wasn't living up to my potential or whatever, you know, that I felt like I had to make up for that. So I, I was, I was paying my dues. Wow. How, how, wow. I mean, you think about it all now, or at least the way I'm hearing it, it's, you know, to hear the, the, the dynamic, like I'm paying my dues. I'm, you know, I was screwed up or I was told I was lazy and you're reading, you're reading these cutting edge, you know, educational theory books and, you know, scoring, you know, highly on these, you know, standardized tests. And you probably, you know, you could have probably run circles around half your teachers um, in, in, in different kinds of ways. And they just, clearly, it sounds like they just didn't know what to do with you. And so they, they just sort of, you know, knocked you down or tried to. Um, and I can understand how that must have been very stressful in many ways because no one really understood you and no one tried to understand you other than this one teacher who probably didn't quite understand you, but knew not to knock you down. And, and your parents were just trying to steer you in the right direction. And my sense is that you got that. You understood that your parents were really trying to do the right thing by you. Well, and I'm the, I'm the youngest. My brother is, I have two siblings. My brother is five years old and my sister is eight years older. So you got uh-huh. that, that there was a real sense of my folks wanted to get me over the finish line. <laughs> <laughs> I think parents always feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, yeah. for me, it was like, we get Keith out of college and it's almost like pre-retirement. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, you know, so there was pressure there too. And I think you know this about me, but we haven't mentioned it yet. The other sense in which I was kind of paying my dues is that I knew it was going to be tough to finance school. Mm. We were not a wealthy family, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, I came up with this crazy idea to enlist in the army, um, part of reserve now, part-time. Right. Because I figured that would help me get an army scholarship. So, you know, at the time, I don't think I realized how much pressure I was putting on myself, but, you know, but, but you can picture the scene now because what I'm doing is I'm saying, okay, all of my favorite topics are unavailable to me. I can't do that. I have to do whatever topic adults in my life tell me is going to lead to employment. Right. And I have to do whatever I have to, to pay for school, you know, and if that means joining the army, which uh, that was really the reason it was, it was all about money, you know. Now, it's, it's not that the Army had no appeal. I also thought that it was going to give me the discipline that I had lacked as a high school student. And that was an important factor. You did. And you thought about And I think, if I recall, you did that independently. Like, this was something you decided on your own. Nobody put that in your head, right? My folks not only thought I was crazy, they were against it. They didn't forbid it. Okay. So, yep. I was a kid. You were 17. Was yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Because my folks had to sign. You can't, you can't enlist younger than 18. So I really was a kid. So there was a lot of talk about paying for school. Right. You no, know, it was all that, that, you know, that was the whole thing. Right. Um, but you know, still you go to basic, you, you have to learn how to do these things. So I was, yeah. um, 
I, I was certainly mentally prepared to go and serve if I, if I had to, but, um, you know, we haven't talked about, you know, my college years, but, um, I was supposed to graduate in 90. I had a semester off when I did a, a, a research project. Uh, it was kind of like an internship, but not a traditional one. I was actually doing this, um, MBTI SAT research that I think I had mentioned to you at some point along the line. Yeah. And, um, so I graduated a little bit later and I graduated, graduated in 91. And that's very related to this whole army business mm. because that means that between, you know, 85 and 91 or whatever, I was doing my weekends, I was training and I was, you know, repelling and, and stuff, but it was yeah. just all this while I'm going to school. Um, but then, and all of my friends, including my freshman roommate and so on that did graduate on time in 1990, that spring was the first Gulf war. Uh, okay. They all immediately, I mean, you know, at 21 years old, they all immediately got commissioned and like a week later were, were on a plane. Yeah. But that wasn't my experience because I was late. I mean, I, that wasn't the, you know, the plan because I had made that decision a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my colonel at the time said, Keith, you're not going anywhere. I don't care if your reserve unit wants you or whatever. You're not, you belong to me because you have just a few months before you graduate. We're paying for your school, Right. It was actually an issue because I also belonged to a reserve unit. Oh, okay. So this conflict between it, it was the who owns me. In fact, that that program, which they called the simultaneous membership program, they don't do anymore because it created this issue that I was both oh, an enlisted okay. person and a future officer at the same time. I belonged to two organizations. Okay. And I think they just hadn't anticipated that this could be a problem, that you could have a call up and one of those organizations needs me, but the other organization can't let me go. So that was, I, I think they, I think they figured that out, but at the time it was a real problem. You had a lot of people reading contracts and going through things and trying to figure out which of these two organizations owns, um, owns Keith. Who, you know, so who was, owned Keith? <laughs> yeah. You know, you are, you are army property. I remember getting a, a sunburn and uh, any army that can tell you this, it, you know, if you get a sunburn, your drill sergeants will say you've, um, just, you know, you've, um, damaged army property. They can actually break you up. They can actually fine you. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. I've learned a lot of new things already here. So um, you you talked about the uh, research project that you did in the middle of school, which was not an engineering project, correct? Yes. Yeah. So a quick way to explain that is WPI, where I went, which is in Worcester, Mass., Right. Has three graduation requirements that make them a little bit unusual. So you have to do a project in your major. It's kind of like an undergraduate thesis, but it's kind of a big deal. You spend like a year on it. Mm -hmm. Then you have to do one in the social sciences. And the idea behind that was the social impact of technology. So Mm -hmm. if you're going to you know, if you're going to learn how to build highways, then maybe it's a good idea to take some classes and learn about, uh, you know, like when the Cross Bronx Expressway destroyed a neighborhood. And, you know, I mean, the, the <laughs> right. whole idea is the right. societal impact of technology, which I thought right. was really amazing. It's one of the things that I loved about WPI. But yeah. then you also have to do one in the humanities. So I did a computer science project because that was my major. Yeah. And the social science one that I did was on learning styles. It would, you know, I tried to kind of somewhat tie it into my computer science. What I was trying to do is figure out how knowing someone's learning style 
could help you build more effective computer-based instruction. Mm-hmm. It sounds cooler than it was. It was very primitive, <laughs> but yeah, I was just a kid, you know, but yeah. I had to learn. I had to figure out learning styles. Right. And that's what led me to the mm-hmm. MBTI. And right. then the humanities one was in philosophy, which has continued to be a, a lifelong, you know, interest. Yeah. But the MBTI one was kind of a, a life altering one, at least for a time. So let's clarify. MBTI is the Myers-Briggs type. Myers-Briggs type indicator assessment. <laughs> Just, oh, okay. It's kind of funny they, uh, because they put the trademark on the MBTI and then they want to make sure that people understand that it's uh, the publisher did that some years ago. But yeah, that's the. And so can you tell our listeners, a lot of people have heard of the Myers-Briggs book. Can you just tell our listeners in a, in a nutshell what the MBTI is and how that fit into the project that you did? It's based on, um, it's based on Jung and Jung had this theory. People, you know, you'll hear Jung made it up or whatever, you know, cause he wasn't, he wasn't an, uh, an experimentalist, but he saw patients. So he felt that you had two ways of perceiving and two ways of judging. You had two ways of taking information and two ways of judging. So he, he described those. And then famously, he coined the phase introversion. So he also talked right. about introversion and extroversion. Right. And you take those two simple concepts together, and you basically get Jung's version of the MBTI. So at the end of my freshman year, at WPI, you had to sign up for these projects mm-hmm. and there'd be sign up sheets outside professors' doors. It was a big thing. And when you were freshmen, there was a particular ritual that everybody engaged in. And that was all of your advisors would say, you got to get this social science thing out of the way to do the project in your major. It's too early because you're freshmen. What do you know about your major? You've been too busy taking you know, freshman classes. Get this social science thing done. And I said, okay, I'm going to find a social science faculty member and talk to them about this project idea. And lo and behold, about a week or two after that, there was going to be this big conference on campus. And he said, not only am I willing to take you on as a project student, well, I'll take you on. But not only that, I want to invite you to this professional adult. That we're... He was great because he had students do things that usually only the faculty would do. He was constantly inviting us to do whatever he was doing, you know, uh-huh. not only not drawing the separation between professors and students. So he said, Hey, I'm, I'm the chair of this conference, like in a week. And why don't you just come and hang out? So I did. And it was on, uh, he was a sociologist of science. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what that means basically is he tries to understand how scientists work together as teams mm-hmm. to innovate and to be creative. So mm-hmm. it sounded interesting to me. It sounded like to all the stuff that my high school teachers told me not to read about, which I had always liked, you know, right. but for me, it was a homecoming. It was fabulous. Yeah. So I go to this conference and he introduces me to a woman named Mary McCauley, who was not famous, but I, I, I think she deserves to be a lot more famous than she is. But Mary McCauley met Isabel Myers, the daughter of the mother-daughter team, in 1968. Isabel was trying to really bring the MBTI to a new level. It wasn't well known yet. Yeah. And Mary McCauley was a professor of psychology at the University of Florida, met Isabel, was very impressed. And for the next 20 years, they were inseparable. They worked together almost every day over that 20-year period. 
And Mary is probably more responsible than anyone else for making the MBTI famous because that's uh, really what they did together. They founded yeah. a nonprofit that was a research house and they put this out. So I meet Mary at this event. I'm just a kid. I'm a freshman. And I said, so nice to meet you, Mary. Uh, your professor says that uh, you're doing this project. I said, mm-hmm. yeah, but it's on learning styles. It's learning styles. It has nothing to do with personality. So uh, it was very nice meeting you, but I think about this person who's going to change my young life, right? But mm-hmm. I said, oh, I was dismissive about it. I said, I, I found this thing called the learning style inventory. Yeah. And I'm going to use that. Yeah. And she goes, Keith, sit down. We are going to have lunch. And that changed the next 10 years of my life, that lunch. I love that. Yep. <laughs> not, not just my undergraduate career. In fact, really... Um. In a sense, it would kind of led to my first real job, uh, you yeah. know, in many ways. But again, at that young age, so I started this research project that continued until really more than 10 years. I mean, at least the first 15 years of my career was very much in, in fact, the fact that I do data science now comes directly from this event. Because right to, from that lunch. Yeah, truly, truly. Because yeah. Until that lunch, I had no particular interest in statistics. I had taken one statistics course that I was forced to take. I didn't like the course, didn't particularly like the professor, didn't Mm -hmm. like the textbook. There was really nothing about that course that I liked. I didn't retain it very well. Mm -hmm. But now I had a reason that I had to understand statistics because I had to understand psychometrics. I had to understand test design. I didn't even know what that word was, you know, until after meeting Andrew. Right. But when you think about it, to look at the SAT and the MBTI together, you have to understand the psychometrics of each. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, behind us, I can kind of see in the webcam here, I've got about, tw- and just in this bookcase alone, I've got about 12 or 15 linear feet of psychometrics books. Uh-huh. And it comes from that lunch. I had, I had I'd never even known that psychometrics was a thing before that lunch. So I'm curious, what happened or what was spoken in that lunch that you would say was a, a pivotal moment or was said? What was triggered within you? Or was there something specific that Mary shared with you that, you know, how did how did Mary have you at hello? Well, really two things. No, but you but you frame it in exactly the right way, because it really was that pivotal, pivotal. Uh, but it was really two things. Keith, trust me on this. The MBTI is helpful on learning styles, which I just had to take on faith. And you can imagine, I wasn't really a mm-hmm. pay attention to authority kid, right? <laughs> so, right, right. We know but that. She was, but she was charming, right? And I, and I felt that I felt that she was someone that I could trust. So I'm, I've always been one to be quite willing to take what someone says on faith until I learn otherwise. But then the other thing that she was doing is she was offering mentoring in this area. And I've always felt that's the best way to learn. But somehow I felt that this was someone that I could trust that was going to mentor me. And I was about to embark on this intellectual journey. So why would I want to refuse a mentor? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so remarkable. Here you are, you're, you know, you're basically a kid and you're a new college student still you meet this older woman 
at a conference, you have lunch with her and, you know, something really landed for you in that, in that moment. I mean, you didn't know at that moment that it was going to, you know, create this relationship that was going to go on for all those years. But still the fact that you stay, you know, the fact that you were that open to her and the fact that she took the time to sort of say, you know, Keith, trust me on this, that she, she saw something in you too. And, and you can't even, you can't put data on that. That was, there was just a connection there that, that just needed to happen. Um, I think that we all have, or I hope we all have stories that we can point to, you know, kind of what I call those defining moments where something just happens that we can't explain entirely. And yet, you know, there is a story around it, but, um, but we can't necessarily explain all the elements of it. So you, I'm going to fast forward us a little bit. Um, so you finished up your computer science degree, but you you also continued on this research, and then you graduated and continued to work directly with Mary at that point. Is that true or yeah, no? Yeah. So just to just to wrap up on the on the army piece because obviously that was somewhat hanging over me, right? So first Gulf War starts in 1990. When I graduated in 1991, it was the beginning of the drawdown, which Mm -hmm. most people wouldn't remember. But that was a big deal for me because I had always assumed that I would have to go active duty after graduating because I was on the hook for that. That's what I owed. That's what I owed the army for paying for my um, thing. And I had planned for it. I wasn't even particularly trying to avoid it. And they they had put everybody the previous year active duty, which they never do. Yeah. So my year, they put no one on active duty. So suddenly it was like, okay, now, now what? Because I just, for years, I had assumed that I would be active duty for at least four years. And then I suddenly wasn't. So um, what I decided to do was to start my own business. Oh. You can imagine my, my folks were thrilled. <laughs> um, and I started an SAT prep business. Ah, okay. Because the army didn't like me working in college. But I had to, I had to pay for everyday bills like utilities and stuff. My scholarship right. didn't pay the, pay the light bill, you know, right. um, didn't pay for pizza on the weekend. You know, if I, if I got hungry and the cafeteria was closed, right. you know, just very simple things like that. In fact, right. a funny detail, you know, what army scholarship recipients got for a stipend. So we were barred from working hundred bucks a month. So we were supposed to pay all of our everyday expenses with $100 a month. I'm not making that up a true story. Wow. Because it took an act of Congress to increase that. And it just hadn't been important enough for anybody to do. So that had been the same number since the 60s. It's <laughs> just ridiculous. Wow. Okay. So the reason <laughs> this isn't so important is because I got by by tutoring. And most of my tutoring was SAT prep. Oh, Okay. Because of the whole thing that started in high school where I knew that this was something I was good at. Right. And that's, and I always knew that I kind of liked mentoring and coaching people myself. 
Mm-hmm. So I liked seeking out mentors, but I also mm-hmm. liked being the mentor. Even, even in the army, I always wanted to be the one to volunteer to do the demonstration of the class. So this seemed like a natural fit. Mm-hmm. Problem is starting a business is tough, you know? So, but I did that some, quite successfully. And of course I, I knew quite a bit about it. Uh, wasn't making a fortune, but I was getting by. I was proud of the work that I did, but I needed a little bit of extra income, certainly because I was uh, the founder of a brand new business. Yeah. So I was still going to these conferences to present the undergraduate research that had never stopped. Oh, I was mm-hmm. going all over the place. I was like um, Center for Applications to Psychological Type, which is the nonprofit that Mary and Isabel founded. Right. These conferences, and they were really cool. You would have the MBTI in Culture Conference in Hawaii. Who doesn't want to go to that? Right. Uh, MBTI and education conference in, you know, Atlanta or what have you. Right. So I, I was going to all of these. Yeah. But I didn't, I was a young entrepreneur. Yeah. I was busy. I didn't have money. It was a really kind of a tough situation. So Jerry McDade was the um, CEO of the Center of Applications of Psychological Type at the time. So he kind of ran the day-to-day and Mary was kind of founder and president. Right. And he saw me speak and said, Keith, I'm excited to see next year's. This was fantastic what you just presented. And think about it, I was getting some speaking experience too, which is so helpful now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In my career, because I was speaking, I was 22, 23, 24 years old talking to audiences of 50 or 60. At the time, it didn't seem surprising, but I realize now that that was so helpful. Yeah. In my career now, you know, just kind of knowing how to work a room when body language tells you that people aren't paying attention or whatever. I started to learn those things at a fairly yeah. early age. Yeah. I even did some keynotes when I was um, early 20s. Wow. Um, so uh, because I had all this research stuff that I was reporting. So Jerry said, would love to have you come back next year. And I said, Jerry, I, you know, I don't have money to come back next year. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when. Capt hired me to be their in-house statistics guy. I see. Okay. Working remotely from this house, actually. Wow. And I did that. I did that for. I did that concurrent with the tutoring business for a while. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the details get a little bit more complicated than that. Right. That's how I got through that right. stage in my career. Mm-hmm. But right. it immersed me in the statistics because now mm-hmm. I wasn't just doing the statistics for me. I was analyzing other people's data sets. It was almost mm-hmm. like I was a statistics consultant. Mm-hmm. And that led quite directly to SPSS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. SPSS. Uh, yeah, statistical package for the social sciences. The right. Military, I've, I'm, I've, I've heard of it. I just wanted you to yeah, spell so the, it out for us. Yeah, it's now an IBM product, but it's been around for decades. In fact, it's uh, almost exactly my age. It came out in the late 60s. Wow. So, um, so you had all these experiences from a fairly, you know, fairly young age, and yet it sounded like you were you were really kind of following um, following your gut at this point. You had fewer uh, people sort of steering the ship. You were steering the ship at this point, and kind of creating a flow or some flexibility around your commitment to the army. And, um, and really trying to manage and maintain your, you know, financial stability at the same time. Uh, that, that's fair to you, say. So, were you enjoying, 
were you enjoying your life at that point? No, I, th- I think it's fair to say that I was struggling. I mean, starting a business is a really stressful thing. There was a period probably where I was passionate about these things. I think you're right that I'd taken the reins at that stage. Yeah. But I think I was surrounded by skeptics. Yeah. <laughs> Mary was not a skeptic. Right. Jerry was not a skeptic, but probably almost everybody else in my life was a skeptic. And uh, the other piece of the puzzle, which I haven't mentioned yet, but we don't have to talk about in length, is that I really thought that I would end up pursuing a PhD at that uh. point because psychometrics, that's the kind of thing where you get a PhD. Yeah, so I right, was either right. a PhD in psychometrics or a master's in school psych. Right. Because right. I felt like I needed, I just felt like I was the kind of person who did grad school. That's really yeah, right. the time. Right. But okay, here it is. I, I've got a business. The business is doing okay, but it's not like I'm a wealthy guy. Now yeah. I'm thinking about grad school. Probably, the, probably everybody in my life probably just wondered, you know, the, the kid has to make a decision here, you know, it's yeah. probably, probably what was going on. Yeah. So how, how, for how long did you go on with, with kind of the, the balance of the contract with, um, Oh, CAPT. Yeah. Yep. Um, well, uh, that lasted a while, like three or four years. And I found that very rewarding. Uh, and Mary was a huge fan of me doing graduate work. She was really, really excited for me to do that and was very, very supportive. But, you know, the next thing that happened was more coincidence than anything else, but that changed my life all over again. So if I said that Mary's influence was really powerful for about that 10-year period, Mm. this is the moment of uh, transition. So I go to my boss in this small you know, it's just part of my life, this part-time work that I'm doing for CAPT. And I said, look, I'll do a little, I'll do a little, uh, a little bit of a trade with you. Um, if you pay for a bunch of SPSS training, because I'm using that statistic software every day, if mm-hmm. you pay the training fee, um, I'll take the classes in my spare time. So mm-hmm. I won't be on the clock, you know, when I, when I do those classes and if it means that I have to travel to another city, I'll pick up the travel myself. You know, I'll go up to Washington, D.C., where SPSS had a big office during the summer when I know a bunch of kids have, sp- there's a bunch of empty rooms all right. over. Right. So, um, you know, uh, kids that are home from Georgetown over the summer, whatever, I knew I could figure that out. I ended up going up there for like 10 or 12 weeks, but I took every class they offered for this training fee that CAPT had paid for. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge milestone because we're talking serious amount of material now. So we're talking 30, 40 business days of really heavy duty, eight hour a day statistics software training. Wow. So naturally they got to know me. <laughs> you know, I would <laughs> show up and they'd say, Keith is back for class again today. Because some people <laughs> might only go to like three days, but I right. had basically taken almost like a little sabbatical to do all wow. this training. But I learned some serious stats theory during that experience to supplement mm. what I had learned along the way. Because remember, I'd been doing research for 10 years at that point. So I wasn't I wasn't a rookie, but this kicked me up to the next level. Yeah. They got to know me. And uh, during break, they said, we've been desperate to find someone to teach the basic class. But every time we interview a professor, they're too academic. And every time we... Um, interview a business consultant, 
They're not academic enough. We can't find anybody that strikes the right balance, but we think that you would. And mm-hmm. I said, I'm kind of younger than the other trainers. I don't have a PhD. And the guy said, you know, I just think you need to talk to my boss because I, I, he said, frankly, I don't care about that stuff, about the credentials, because I've done like 20 interviews now and I haven't found anybody that would be as good as you at this. Mm-hmm. You need to call Chicago. You need to call headquarters and talk to my boss. And they gave me a shot and I loved it. And um, the students in my classes thought it was fantastic, you know, to the point where they would, when is Keith's next class kind of a thing, you know, I mean, I I was, I was a hit, you know, even, even kind of from the very early years. So that was my primary income for 20 years. Wow. After that. Wow. That was the beginning of my career. Well, it, it tapered down for 10 years. It was really important. Right. And and you were still working with CAPT too, right? No, not at that, not at the, not at that point. Yeah. So okay. there was a there was a short there was a small period of overlap, mm-hmm. but um, but the SPSS got really intense. So grad school had to go, and CAPT had to go. I see. I see. And and then now I know that you've also written several books. So tell us about those. So, um, yeah, so I happen to just remember when the first book came out. So in 2013, I was past that 10 year mark teaching. I knew a lot of experts in the field. To be honest, I was not confident about reaching out to a publisher. So what I did is I did the multi-authored thing. I reached out to some of my other expert colleagues and said, why don't we have five of us get together? We're, we're all known for one thing or another in this community. Let's collaborate, write this book. It will be all the people that are famous for this particular piece of software. And it did really well. And it wasn't for a big publisher. It was one of those kind of semi-self-authoring, you know, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it did, it did really well because it was the first of its kind. Mm-hmm. And pretty much everybody in the community knew one or more of the five of us. Mm-hmm. That was the transition from people taking the class with me because they knew me. Yeah. Taking the class with me because I had been assigned to that class. Mm-hmm. That was a big milestone. Wow. And so that was that was a big transition point. And and then from there, that springboarded into more books, correct? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, so I did a number of books. But it was more that, again, I was starting to develop, I guess, you know, what we would call these days a personal brand. But now I I spend very little time doing software training. It's maybe 5% of my year. It used to be 95% of my year. So now it's working with analytics leaders. Okay. That's been a real shift. A few years ago, I was um, a VP of analytics and the general manager of a small team. I mean, mm-hmm. quite small, like a half dozen people yeah. for a small consultancy, but we were the analytics folks, you know, right. on that team. So that was another transition where I started to think, wow, you know, there's so many people teaching the basics out there. I mean, you just, you know, sometimes the light bulb goes off and you go, wow, you know, this software business is well covered. I don't, I don't need to do that anymore. Right. Lots of people that can do that in my absence. Right. What's completely missing is experienced analytics project leadership. Right. Because when I was in that VP of analytics role, 
I got a number of things right, I think, certainly made a lot of mistakes as well. But where do you go for mentorship when you're in that kind of a role? Almost nobody. There's almost no books on it. One or two of them have appeared since just in the last year. It is just the beginning of getting to the point where there's enough people like me and some of my experienced colleagues that we can start to tell a director of analytics or somebody like that, what we've learned over these many years now. So I've shifted almost completely away from practitioners to analytics leadership. Yeah. So it's really about um, working with, advising, and giving people insights into that that kind of thinking. Absolutely. Right. And and so if you were to um as we're wrapping up here, if you were to give somebody a piece of advice from your own experience about making transitions or making decisions as they're going forward in their careers, what would you say is a key uh key piece of advice? Well On the analytics side, something that I frequently bring up when I'm asked those questions is something that I think that is just as useful to both the data scientist and their boss. And I think it also ties into all this talk about personality and learning styles that we've said. Yeah. That a number of data scientists will want to go into analytics leadership. So what I say to both the C-suite and data scientists is kind of figure that out. Figure out if you want to be an individual contributor yeah, or if you want to be an analytics leader. And there's mm-hmm. no shame right. to be an individual contributor. So what I say to the C-suite is offer up that path to all your technical folks. You have to give them a way that they don't feel that the only path to promotion right. is taking a job that they don't want. Oh, I love that. That's great advice because I think a lot of people do get caught in that, in that trap and think that they, there's a have to rather than a want to in that way. Well, uh, this has been really interesting and I appreciate your time here today. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. This was great fun. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Keith McCormick. It was so interesting to speak with him about his professional journey. What is your key takeaway from our interview? If you are interested in any of the resources or links mentioned in today's podcast, you can find them on the blog page of my website at www.tammygoolerlobe.com. Just look for episode 118. Are you thinking about what your next professional move might be? Maybe you're feeling a little stuck. Get specialized group and individualized support, insights, and accountability from a brilliant mix of professional women in a safe, non-judgmental, creative space. Join one of my small hybrid mastermind coaching groups starting on a rolling basis. You can learn more at https colon forward slash bit.ly forward slash navigating career change. If you were inspired by this episode with Keith, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you enjoying the podcast? 
I would really appreciate your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find through my website at www.tammygoolerlobe.com forward slash podcast. Just click on the Apple Podcast button and follow the instructions provided there. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, it's never too late or too impossible to increase your sense of fulfillment and satisfaction in your work and other meaningful activities. I would love to hear how it's going for you. Feel free to drop me a line. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Work From the Inside Out podcast. For more information, you can find us at www.workfromtheinsideout.com.